You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, Paul's continuing this morning um, his, his argument. The whole letter really is about this doctrine we've been talking about every week, justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. That's, if you're like, what's the letter of Galatians about? It's about justification by faith alone. And maybe secondarily, I would say, Paul is arguing for the reason why our justification is by faith alone, and it's because through faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit, we're united with Christ. So this is a letter about our union with Christ producing justification carried out by faith alone, and he's trying to build an argument against the people who have started to turn from this truth and started to believe in a a false gospel, a works-based gospel of justification by faith plus works, justification by Jesus plus me. Okay, and so he's working against that. This whole letter is him working against that. And last week, you'll remember that Michael was talking to us a little bit about this, this introduction to a new argument that Paul is making where he brings Abraham into the conversation. And he just makes a really simple point. And he just, he says, was the covenant of the promises that were given to Abraham, did that come before or after the law? And of course, the answer is before the law. We'll read this morning, 430 years before the law. He says, so if the covenant was given to Abraham by promise, preaching the gospel to him beforehand, then the seal of the covenant is by promise alone. I mean, otherwise, if we think through that, right, like going back to last week, if the law comes 430 years later, that means that it didn't come in time to justify Abraham, to the one to whom the promise was given. So he starts to introduce us to this thinking, but he didn't really get us all the way there last week. So this week, he's going to go a little bit further, and he's going to pull in a human example. He's going to start helping us think through how testaments and covenants work. And that's going to, that's going to begin in verse 15. We're going to go on down through 22 this morning. And he's going to introduce us to, the purp- to a purpose of the law. It goes like this. To give a human example, brothers, of what he was talking about last week, even with a man-made covenant, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul says, I'm, I'm moving into a human example. Even with human covenants, even with human testaments, wills and testaments, with these man-made covenants, no one can annul it or add to it once it has been ratified. Now, I think that what he has in mind when he says a man-made covenant there is like a last will in testament. The word covenant there could be uh, also translated as testament. And so now that he's in the human realm, whether he's appealing to Roman law or Greek law or Jewish law, it doesn't really matter because in all three laws, there comes a point different between the three cultures, but there comes a point where the covenant is considered ratified. And at that point, it cannot be annulled and it cannot be changed. Now, for the most part, when you think about a last will in testament, you can update that as often as you want while you're still living. But once you die, whatever was in your last will and testament cannot be annulled or changed. And so you'll see that kind of come up. And so he's going to make arguments about that in future, in future chapters, and we'll talk about that more later. But he's starting to help us think through, okay, God made a promise, and he made it as a covenant. He made it as a, as a testament. And we know, even with human covenants, that no one can annul it or add to it once it has been ratified. And the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and to his offspring. So now he's starting to bring Jesus into the covenant made with Abraham. Now what I hope that we're going to see as we look at the, the juxtaposition of the covenant made with Abraham, 
to the law given to Moses is a superiority of the promise made to Abraham over the law given to Moses, that we see the superiority of the mediator of the covenant as opposed to the mediator of the law, which is what I think that Paul wants to do this morning, and that we will start to see the promise of the gospel in the covenant made with Abraham and come to enjoy it more deeply ourselves this morning. And so he brings in this covenant language. Listen, a covenant was made, and we know that nobody can annul it or add to it or change it once it has been ratified. And these promises, this covenant that was made to Abraham and to his offspring does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but it refers to one and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, up until this point, all of the Jews would assume that the and your offspring was primarily talking about Abraham's son, Isaac. And what Paul is starting to illuminate is that Isaac was merely a shadow of the son on whom the promise was actually intended to land. To remember that God called Abraham to go and lay down and sacrifice his son Isaac, and then he bailed him out at the last moment by setting the sacrificial ram. All of this was a shadow of a different son who was to come on whom the, the promises of this covenant were to land. A different person's blood was going to ratify this covenant. Not Isaac, but Jesus Christ, Paul says. He says the covenant with Abraham and his offspring refers to Christ. But Christ hadn't come yet at the point that the law was given. And so Paul is making a legal argument that because the one on whom the promises was made had not yet come, that the law begins to serve a function in the intermediate state. And we're going to talk about that a good bit more. But first, let's make sure that we get the first point that Paul is making. The covenants of God cannot be changed. So maybe if you're you're like a note taker, the covenants of God cannot be changed or annulled. We don't want to move too quickly past that. And the covenant that God made with Abraham was made by a promise. And the promise that he made, remember Michael preached this last week, was he preached the gospel to him beforehand, is what, is what Paul said, when he said to him, in you all the nations shall be blessed. In you all the nations shall be blessed. You remember Michael said, how is that the gospel? And Paul is explaining it's the gospel because the you that he was talking about was the, was the offspring, and the offspring is Jesus Christ. So when we talk about all the nations being blessed, we're talking about a gospel of justification by faith alone going out to the Gentiles, that God is making one people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's doing it through faith alone, through this covenant that he made to Abraham, through whom, through the offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And he did that by a promise. And when you think about the difference between the law of Moses and the covenant given to Abraham, the covenant given to Abraham was like this. God saying, I will, I will, I will. As opposed to the law passed down to Moses, which was thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. The law putting the burden of responsibility of of behavior and obedience upon man, but the covenant predating the law by 430 years being declarative promises of what God is simply going to do, promises he is going to keep upon the heir of the testament. In other words, God said there's an inheritance of promises, and it belongs to, to its offspring, and the offspring is Jesus, and nothing can change this covenant and this testament that I have made, but, but Jesus hasn't come yet, and so we're going to be introduced to so why the law? 
Well, let's get there together. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. It says, to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean, verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so the Judaizers were presupposing that the law did something that it didn't do. That when the law came onto the scene, that it started to change the nature of the covenant. They, they believed that it was not, even if they didn't say it was annulling the covenant, because I don't think all the Judaizers were saying that, they were saying it did amend it. They said that it was, adding to, it was adding to the covenant the way in which the promises are going to be carried out. And this was problematic to Paul because he was saying, listen, a, 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 co a covenant of God cannot be amended. It cannot be annulled. So when the Judaizers are saying that the law is an addendum to the promise, and when they're saying that the law is now necessary to make the promises complete, and when they're saying that it's now going to take works to finish what was begun by faith, this is where Paul pumps the brakes and he says, stop. You would suppose that the everlasting God who made an everlasting I will, I will, I will covenant has now amended it such that to unleash these promises in order to access these promises, in order to complete these promises, now you're going to need to add your works to finish the, of what was begun by faith? That wasn't the purpose of the law, is what Paul is saying. That wasn't it. When he preached the gospel beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed, he was referring to Jesus Christ uniting a body of people to himself by faith alone. If you, add, if you say that what the law did is change that message to all of those who follow these things can be united to God by their obedience, this is no longer a promise. This is no longer a promise. This is a completely different gospel altogether. The promise came before the law is argument number one that Paul is appealing to. It came first in priority. He's also saying it is superior because it is a covenant. It is a testament of God, an I will statement compared to the law. And when the covenant, and when 430 years later the, the law came, um, it did not come so as to make the promise void. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So before I go any further, because I don't think I need to go further to make Paul's first point, what he's saying to the Judaizers and what he is saying to some of you is that you do not tap into, complete, or otherwise unleash or add to the promises made to Abraham by your obedience to the law. It was never the purpose of the law, and no, the law cannot do it. That not only was it not the intention of God when he gave the law for it to do those things to his covenant, but it couldn't do that even if you wanted it to. So why then the law is the next logical question. So what was the point? Because the Judaizers have been functioning with this belief that by giving the Mosaic law, God was giving us new conditions, uh, amending his covenant and saying, this is how you complete and secure the promises. And if, that, if Paul, you're saying that's not it, then I no longer understand what the point of the law was. Are any of you guys asking that question? 
Because when I release you from the law by preaching the gospel to you, and I say, listen, you've been functioning believing that this thing is how you gain access to the promises made to Abraham. Actually, it doesn't do that. Do you then naturally ask what Paul anticipated you would ask, which is, so what was the point of the law? Well, that's what he anticipates that you would be asking. So if you're not asking it, maybe ask it now. If it wasn't to secure the promises, then what was it? Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, Paul says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's start with the first half. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And we read, because of transgressions, I think that this is helped along by verse 22, where it says that, but, but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The covenant to Abraham had been made to him and his offspring, and Paul is giving clarity that the offspring we're talking about is Jesus, but the one, so that means that the one to whom the promises had been made hadn't arrived yet. So Paul is pointing that out. He says, why the law? It was added because of transgressions till the offspring could come, should come to the one to whom the promises were made. And so we're going to find that the law had at least two uses in Paul's sight, but we're going to save the second use for next week. That the Second use that we'll, that we'll explore next week is it was to be their guardian and it was to be their keeper, but that won't be till next week. We're going to stay solely on this use of the law that Paul holds out, which is this, that it was to put humanity under a curse. The first use of the law that Paul points out to us is the law was given because of transgressions in order to imprison everything under sin. What? God gave the law to imprison everything under sin? Yeah. Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. A little further in Romans 7, Paul wrote, Did that which is good then, meaning the law, bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So one of the functions of the law that Paul is talking about is to imprison sinners to exceedingly reveal to us the sinfulness of sin, to increase the trespass, to cause us to sin all the more. When Paul talks about before the law, I didn't even know I was sinning, but once I was given the law, well, then it just seemed that that it just increased the trespass all the more, that the law ended up in its use producing in me yet more sin. What shall we say then, uh, he says in Romans 9, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that's you, that is a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. 
Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So all of those who looked to the law to be their righteousness could not attain that righteousness, and all those who looked away from the law and looked to the stumbling block to be their righteousness rather than stumbling over it received their righteousness. So that the people who did not have the law, the Gentiles, didn't even know the law, are being declared righteous. Well, Paul laments over his, his brothers in, in Israel who are stumbling over the law and cannot attain the righteousness which comes by faith. He said further in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart does desire and prayer to God for these men is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the first purpose of the law that Paul is pointing us to is to reveal to us our sin and to entrap and imprison us in our sin. It is in some measure to actually increase the trespass in order that we have nowhere to go. It is to bind us up. This is the doctrine of subjecting all things to futility. The law was a tool in the hand of God to condemn you, to convict you, to show you that you have no way out, to show you that you cannot attain a righteousness by your works, to reveal to you just how wicked you are. But then what does Paul say? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So now he starts to make a, a second argument about the superiority of the covenant with Abraham to the Mosaic law. He says, how did the, and this is like a rhetorical question for you guys, how did the covenant come to Abraham? Think of the story. How did it come to him? God himself spoke it over Abraham. There was no mediator. God spoke to Abraham and declared these promises over him. How did the Mosaic law come to Moses? Through the angels. We read it in Deuteronomy 33 and again in Acts 7. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses said that the law came to him on Mount Sinai accompanied by a whole host of angels. In Acts 7, Stephen said that the law itself was delivered to Moses by the angels. So the, the, the law is given with the help of a mediator and it's given to a mediator. Moses himself then had to go and communicate these laws to the people and stand in as a mediator. He'd go and he'd meet with the Lord in the tent of meeting, and then he would go and relay what the Lord had said to him, to them. And so he was this go-between between God and man. There was a mediator necessary for the law. And what the law did is provide the means of mediation. What did it do except to require all the ceremonial cleansings and the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and all these different things that the priests and the mediators, the intermediaries, had to do in order to keep man right with God. And none of that applied to the, to the Abrahamic covenant. It was just the Lord looking at his son who by faith alone had just attained all the promises of the gospel which he preached beforehand. 
So we see the superiority of the covenant with Abraham over the Mosaic law and that the Mosaic law required an intermediary, whereas the covenant did not. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The intermediary is Moses, so given to Moses by the angels. And then he says in verse 20, a very confusing sentence. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I was joking last night that when you hear an intermediary, of course, the first thing we all think is more than one. Not at all, right? It's a very confusing passage. I almost gave up on it, but then I looked to a preacher I love, John Piper, to find out what it means. And when he preached on it in the 80s, he said, I'm not going to touch this because I don't know what it means. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so no, yeah, nobody can bail me out on this one, but I'll tell you what, um, I, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to preach something I know to be biblical, and if it's not what Paul meant, at least I know it's biblical. When he says, now an intermediary implies more than one, I believe that what he's saying is that an intermediary is only necessary when there is more than one party. That you don't call a mediator to mediate for one person, you call a mediator to mediate between two, between two parties. So the necessity of an intermediary says of Moses that there, there are two parties involved in the Mosaic law. And that's where you see the thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt in the keeping of the law and the I will, I will, I will in the promises of God. And then you've got the intermediary between appealing to God on behalf of the people. And so the existence of an intermediary in the, in the Mosaic law communicates that there are two parties necessary in the carrying out of this thing. We'll get to but God is one in a second. So that stands on its own. The existence of a mediator implies more than one party. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a mediator, right? But then he contrasts that with the nature of God himself. And he says, but God is one. And this is embedded in the argument for the superiority of the covenant over the law. And so what I think that Paul is trying to say, and if he's not, then I'm saying it, is that the superiority of the covenant is this, that the, in, that the better mediator of the new covenant, the one achieved by Christ's blood, is, is wrapped up within the oneness of God himself. And I want to explain it this way. The curse that the law, that the Mosaic law placed upon you and I, it placed burden of thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt upon it. And we said that, then Paul said, that was to imprison us in the law. One of the purposes of the law was to place us under a curse, to subject us to the futility of our works and to show us our unrighteousness. And in that, a mediator became required between us and God. But then when the Lord Jesus came, he didn't just come in order that the promises of Abraham would fall upon him as the promised offspring. That's not the only reason he came. While he was at it, he also fulfilled all of the just requirements of the Mosaic law. And when he did it, he did that all within himself. So play this out in your head, and if I confuse you a ton, that's okay. The Lord God makes a promise, and he says that the promise is going to be carried out on an offspring. And who is the offspring but Jesus Christ? And who is Jesus Christ? God. God being one has made a promise that comes to be fulfilled upon himself. But then in order to bring that about, he also has to fulfill the just demands of the law, of the Mosaic law. Jesus himself does that. And so then he acts as an intermediary for all those who are going to be additional recipients of the original promise because of our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, who is who? God. 
And so what we see is that for you to receive the promises of the covenant made with Abraham, you need to be united with the heir of those promises. The heir of the promises was God, and so to be united with him, you need God to indwell you and to mediate for you and fulfill the requirements of the law for you. So we see a God who makes a promise fulfilled in himself as the heir of his own promise, mediating that promise himself, and then wedding you to that promise by uniting you with the heir of the promise so that you too are fellow heirs with Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is God. So when we say that the law required an intermediary, what we're highlighting is the greater intermediator, the greater mediator who was Jesus, God himself carrying out all parts of the Abrahamic covenant and fulfilling the just requirements of the law all in one. And if that's not what he means, it's at least biblical. So is the law, verse 21, then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he makes an argument for the goodness of the law. He says the law is not contrary to the promises of God. He's not pitting the law against the promises of God. He's saying it's not, these aren't contrary to his nature. It's not even contrary to the promise. He's saying the promise is actually carried out through the keeping of the law, but not by you, by another on your behalf and then imputed to you justification by faith alone. If the law that had been given could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. So he's highlighting that it cannot work. That's what I said in the beginning. Even if, even if you could try to make it mean that you can get righteousness this way, you couldn't do it. It can't be done. In fact, what the scriptures did instead is it imprisoned everything under sin, but the reason, he says, is good news, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the Lord God shipwrecked your other options in order that only one option would remain. He increased the impossibility of all other pursuits of righteousness in order to secure the one means of righteousness which he had always intended, dating all the way back to the beginning. It has always been by faith alone. Remember last week Michael preached that the law was not given to make anybody a child of God that when the promise was given, that the people of God, the covenant people of God were formed when the promise was made to Abraham, and then it would be 430 years later before the law is even received by them. They didn't become the people of God when the law was given. They'd been the people of God for 430 years before the law was given. So the law could not have been given to make anybody anything. They already were the thing. The law was given for a completely different reason that doesn't make it contrary to the nature of God. It just means it's not about what you're making it about. And the Judaizers were saying that what, G what the Lord was doing is he was amending the covenant. And Paul's saying that's not what he was doing at all. And this week what he's highlighting is what he was doing was putting you under a curse until the one on whom the promises were made would come. In 1 Timothy 2, we read that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So this implied intermediary, Moses, is replaced by a better mediator. And this mediator in the nature of the sealing of a testament with a mediator is fleshed out in Hebrews. You guys should read it. Uh, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 on your own time, but I'll give you a sampling. Our writer there says, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, chapter 9, so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hold on to that. For since the law in chapter 10 has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, once they were cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's this reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, when you guys hear about, like, the sacrificial system in, in Old Testament law, like, and they were sacrificing animals for atonement for their sin, and you guys aren't doing that. Like I, like, I just want you to see, like, the cognitive dissonance taking place when you are believing that the law is making you right with God, but you're not even keeping the laws that were about that. Like, you don't, I don't see you guys sacrificing animals. I don't see you guys doing, like, 99% of the law that was given, and yet there's still some part of us because of our desperate need to make ourselves righteous that believes, I need that law, and I got to keep it to the letter because that's my righteousness. And that's why Paul makes the extreme case over and over again. Listen, if you would submit to the law for your righteousness, you've got to keep the whole thing. You've got to do it all. But what we do because we're hypocrites is we kind of, honestly, what we do is we write our own law, the things that we think make us good people, and then we only focus on the ones we're actually doing, and then we hold that up as our righteousness. We write our own standard, ignore the ones that we don't keep, and then take the ones that we do keep and present it to God like an offering that's going to make us right with him. If you want some standard, he, he gave it. And you better keep the whole thing. So this week at Gospel Community, I want somebody to bring the animal. Don't laugh. If you're going to walk by the law, please, for your sake, keep the whole thing. And if you're not going to bring an animal to GC this week, renounce your righteousness by works and cling to the righteousness that comes through the promise given to Abraham that's landed on Jesus Christ and is made yours by your union with him by faith alone. It's a better righteousness anyway. When Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body that you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, Moses knew, even when he gave the law, about this use of it. This isn't a Paul idea. Moses knew it when he gave it. He wrote in Deuteronomy 29, To this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to hear or eyes to see or ears to hear. He knew that they could not keep what he was giving to them because God hadn't allowed them. He then said in Deuteronomy 31, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Moses knew when God gave him the law that the purpose of the law was to put the people under a curse. But he had this hope that he wrote in Deuteronomy 30, but the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And that circumcision of the heart is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the new life in Christ. A Puritan William Perkins said it like this. He said, The promises that were made to Abraham were made first to Christ and then in Christ to all who are united in him. How can it be that the promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through his offspring would be made true? It's because all the promises made to Abraham were made to Christ and then in Christ to all who are united with him. You are the offspring. You are co-heirs with Christ. And the promises made to Abraham, the promises of the gospel belong to you because of the heir who went before you. Because God is one and he fulfilled both ends of the covenant. And so my charge for you this morning is to once again renounce your righteousness which comes from the law. It cannot be found. It cannot be achieved. Your obedience is not adding to or securing for you the promises of the covenant. I want you guys with me now in your hearts and prayer to turn to the Lord and to think about what are the things this week which you offered to him in your secret heart as now you're going to be proud of me. Now I'm going to belong. Now you're going to be pleased with me. Now your promises are mine. And if you're sitting in that and you're like, I can't think of a time that I did that, it may be because you're functioning on the other side of that, which is you've said to God, surely you're done with me now. Surely I've flunked my way out of this now. Surely I've disobeyed my way out of the promise now. This type of thinking is Judaizer thinking, which says that the law served, the purpose of the law, which Paul has dismantled, it says the purpose of the law was to amend the promise such that now to achieve the promises of the covenant, you must obey. It's going to be your obedience, church, or it's going to be Christ's obedience on your behalf. You've got to pick one, and you've got to pick that every day. So let's pick it together now.